What is precision medicine? How can cancer patients benefit from it? And what role does it play in, in cellular therapy? Welcome to the Cell Therapy Podcast by Calculate. I'm your host, Mike Barnkop, and these are some of the topics we'll be discussing today. So to help me with this, I have the great honor of having two guests on, Dr. Caroline Heckman from the University of Helsinki and Dr. Kirtil Tasken from Oslo University Hospital, who are both leading experts in the field of precision medicine. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So before we get started, I, I, I want to quickly introduce you both uh, so our listeners know a bit more about your, your background. Carolina Heckman is, is trained as at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas, did postdoctoral work at Stanford before moving to Finland to become a principal investigator and, and then a research director for the Institute for Molecular Medicine in Finland. She's won numerous awards and fellowships, including the Academy of, uh, from the Academy of Finland and the American Association of Cancer Research. Her research is focused on understanding the molecular underpinnings of hematological cancers and uses state-of-the-art methods to improve the lives of patients. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Mike. Our other guest, Dr. Ketil Tasken, has been a professor of medicine at Oslo University Hospital for over 20 years now and is head and director of Institute of Cancer Research, director at the Center for Precision Medicine and Cancer, uh, both at the Oslo University Hospital. So he originally did his PhD at Kraftfreining, the Norwegian Cancer Society, before combining both medical training with first postdoctoral work and later running your own research group. Dr. Tasken has won numerous awards as well, including a Life, uh, a life Achievement Award by the Norwegian Cancer Society and the Anders Jahr Medical Award. He's an elected member of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences and Letters. And his many facets research interests has resulted in over 200 publications in themes such as immune regulation, cancer immunology, and of course, in, in cancer precision medicine. So uh, thank you for being on as well, Kurt. Thank you for a kind introduction. <laughs> so I, I always like to ask our guests what's, what, what brought uh, them into research in the first place. Can you tell me a bit about your careers and, and background and, and how you ended up where you did? Uh, Carolina Pass, we can start with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I, I guess I've had a really long-standing interest in, in science, and, and, and cancer really didn't come around until I, I started my PhD at MD, well, at the University of Texas and MD Anderson Cancer Center. So, And uh, I think when I was there, uh, one day I was listening to a, a lecture from one of the, the new assistant professors there, um, Tim McDonald. And he had just um, come from the group of Stan Korsmeyer, and they had identified a, a gene called BCL2. And, and this gene really opened up a new field in terms of cell death and apoptosis and how cancer cells can take that pathway and use it to their advantage. And, and so I was really fascinated by that. And I thought, okay, well, it's not what I'm doing as a PhD student right now, but I'm really interested in this topic to go on and look for postdoc on that topic. And so I sort of had a, I, I, I'm originally from California and I, I thought, okay, I'm gonna 
find a postdoc back in California <laughs> and that somebody's working on that. And so, so I went back and, and uh, uh, to Stanford University and started working with uh, Professor Linda Boxer there, who was uh, investigating follicular lymphoma and, and, and uh, different types of lymphoma. And, and so I spent uh, several years there work, working on this gene and trying to understand how one might be able to actually inhibit it. So that was that. I did take a, a bit of a detour. I uh, went for personal reasons to to move to Finland. <laughs> and and uh, when I arrived in Finland, I was working with uh, uh, Professor Korja Litala there, who is one of the, the, I guess, the premier cancer researchers in, in Helsinki. And uh, really learned a lot from him in terms of understanding the impact of the tumor microenvironment. But eventually I moved back into to hematology and, and and I guess that was my my first passion. But I, I think there's still a lot that we need to learn because cancer is a is a very smart disease. It evolves and and uh, even though we have nice new targeted therapies for cancer, uh, these drugs just add uh, a selective pressure, and and the and you get clonal evolution, and and you get disease resistance. So, I think there's still a lot that we need to do, and and hopefully new cell therapies, for example, uh, could be helpful also in in the future. But pretty much that was was my path. Well, thank you so much. Um... Uh, Katyn, uh, can you explain a bit about your career? I, I realize it's <laughs> it's uh, you you have so many achievements, <laughs> but um, um, could you tell us a bit about where you how you ended up where you you are now? Uh, well, I uh, I I always sort of knew that I wanted to go to medical school since I was um, in secondary and and high school and uh, and also when I started I was keen to start doing research or and from before that so I, I I jumped on an opportunity for an MD PhD track when I was in medical school and what made me sort of do that was uh, then young uh, uh, researcher starting out back from postdoc in Houston Texas um, uh, having learned gene technology and he sort of offered that. Uh, you know, and, and this was in 1988, uh, I was sort of two years into medical school or something. And uh, uh, yeah, that was a sort of uh, opportunity to work with a young PI uh, starting a lab and uh, and uh, learning a lot of uh, state-of-the-art gene technology at the time. Uh, and we worked with uh, cell signaling in different model systems. And then uh, I went on to finish my PhD. I did uh, uh, postdoc, I moved to sort of scaffolds and ankle signaling complexes and then to immune regulation. And then we, I've been investigating immunology in uh, uh, in different sort of disease contexts. One of them was cancer. Uh, I started my own lab when I was a postdoc. Uh, my then supervisor went to industry uh, and uh, uh, I sort of thought maybe I should specialize in a specialty in medicine, but I decided not to. I, or I decided to wait to see how I, I did research and maybe start before I was 40, not to having to do primary on call duties, you, you know, <laughs> after 40 or 45 or something. But uh, by, by that time, I, I, I had the group and I, I had a 
uh, full professor appointment, so to say, and I, I have not looked back, you could say. <laughs> uh, and then I've had the opportunities of uh, doing different leadership assignments to set up uh, reorganize the Biotechnology Center of Oslo for U University, and I started the uh, Norwegian Sister Center to where Caroline is, Norwegian Center for Molecular Medicine. I was the director there, and that was 15 years working with EMBN-like models for young group leaders, and I came here the Institute of Cancer Research about uh, five years ago. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been impressive careers, both of you. <laughs> I'd like to start by asking you both a, a very broad question. Uh, what is precision medicine and, and what role do you foresee it having in the future of oncology and, and hematology? Well, I think precision medicine is finding the matching patients with the, the right treatment. So in, in cancer, all patients are, are different. They can't be expected to respond in the same way to a given treatment. And, and so one needs to tailor that treatment to get the, the best response. Uh, I think that there have been different sort of concepts and, uh, and words to describe this. Uh, it's been uh, you know, personalized medicine clinicians don't tend to like that because they think they always have a personal relationship with their patients, right? Uh, and stratified medicine, tailored medicine. I think precision medicine is a good term. It's sort of a little bit landed there now, I think. And it's about uh, diagnostics meeting uh, individualized treatment. Uh, so you do need biomarkers. It doesn't have to be genomics, but you do need, do need biomarkers or some sort of... Uh, to do some pro prognostication for patients about what should their treatment be. Then the thinking is, of course, that you can understand things about patients that uh, differentiate their disease and future disease course and maybe the mechanisms of why they have a particular disease, understanding the molecular mechanisms and uh, using that information. So it's really about diagnosticians meeting clinicians for the best of the patient. Yes, and you, when I read about this, the field seems to sort of it seems to use a, a whole arsenal of different diagnostic tools, as you say, uh, different omics approaches, uh, ex vivo functional assays to sort of test different drugs on. And, and, and even the, some people are doing like xenographs uh, in, in mice to see if they can improve um, uh, or find good drugs for, for, for patients to receive. Do, do, you see the, do you see the field moving into this getting more and more complex and adding on more and more techniques as we go along? Or, or do you think this is a way to, to find the mechanism, as, as you say? I think this is about, you know, the field moving forward. And it started with genomics, you know, mapping of the human genome 20 years ago. That's it, its completion. And it was said at the time that we would immediately capitalize on that, which didn't happen, right? Because we needed to, it had sequenced two individuals, so we needed to understand you know the human diversity and uh, uh what causes a disease and what are the variants that give disease in the in the genome etc and uh, it's been sort of coming forward from that right um and then you can add on a lot of other diagnostic modalities that will also tell you things about patients and, and how their disease will uh progress uh I think that then uh, the implementation of precision medicine, you, you know, across all, all different fields. If you think about how we traditionally documented effect of treatment in medicine, it's but it's the gold standard is uh, randomized placebo controlled trials, right? Mm. Uh, and the basis for doing that is inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uh, the purpose of which are to 
define the patient population in the way that you, for the question that you want to ask in regard to whole population as uh, uh, alike that the patients are, uh, so that you can draw them into two groups and for the purpose of what you're going to examine, they, they will be the same. And uh, precision medicine is starting uh, from a different point. You, you, you know, the philosophy is that all the patients are individual. And if you sort of dig deep enough with diagnostics and sequencing and other things, you can uh, maybe find the course of the disease in each patient, oncogenic drivers, for example, in cancer. And you want to treat them differently based on what you can find out. Uh, and then uh, that principle collides with the principle of, uh, you know, documenting by ra randomized placebo-controlled trials. Uh, so we also need to find other ways of documenting what's, what are efficient treatments and how do we spend, you know, the available money for healthcare in the best possible way for patients also. I think you touch on a very important point. Uh, um, and I guess, so how, how do you guys go about uh, documenting the uh, what you do and how, how well it works? Well, I think uh, one needs to do to do clinical studies really to prove that the, the methods that we're developing and, and trying to implement uh, do have an impact in, in patient outcomes. In Finland, we had started doing ex vivo drug sensitivity testing and, and trying to use that as a tool to do precision medicine. And this was because coming from a background in, in human genomics, for example, most of the, the results we see are that the, the genes that are mutated are not druggable, and, and we need better ways to be able to move our discoveries uh, in, in the laboratory to patient care. So since genomics is probably not necessarily going to, to give us that answer, ex vivo drug testing was going to be a, a functional assay that could be a bit that could be implemented more more quickly. This is something that we we started and have now moved towards investigating in, in clinical studies in Finland. But basically, you do need to be able to show through a very exact study protocol that the outcome of the patients is improving compared to, say, how a, a standard of care patient. And um. Uh, th thanks. That's a, that's a great. Uh, I think that's a great segue into the ne the next theme. Uh, can I just ask you? Uh, so, what are these ex vivo drug sensitivity screens? Can you explain to me how, sort of how they work? Yeah. So basically, taking approved and and also investigational drugs, but drugs that might be relatively easily accessible um, to the clinician, and and testing those drugs on patient cells ex vivo, so outside of the patient, and, and seeing if patient cells are sensitive uh, to, to any of those drugs, and can those drugs be used off-label uh, for patients who are no longer responding to the standard of care. So, so this is especially for especially for for relapsed refractory patients, for example, and giving uh, hopefully an, another option in in the arsenal uh, for for treating those patients who otherwise uh, probably would not have uh, any other uh, therapies. So I'd like to ask a bit about um, the precision medicine field in, in Norway and, and in Finland. And, and Ketel, you're involved in setting up uh, this IMPRESS Norway trial. 
which aims to implement precision medicine at a national level in Norway. Can you can you tell us a bit about what the IMPRESS trial is about and, and what goals you have with this trial? So the, the IMPRESS Norway trial is a um, uh, relatively implementation year trial. Um, it's a model on the DRIP trial that runs in the Netherlands. Uh, and um, it um, uses drugs that are already available on the market and they are explored on other cancer indications than the register indication. You can, we can also use combinations, but they have to be tested for something. So the trial uh, explores repurposing or uh, you know secondary indications. Uh, so that's, uh, the safety is quite good. Uh, uh, and um, then the, the design is a combined umbrella basket trial, me meaning that we set up cohorts that are defined both by the organ-specific diagnosis, by the mutation, and also by the drug that we decide to treat that with. Uh, and um, it's for patients with a, a locally advanced or metastatic disease that have had other treatments and have explored their other treatment opportunities. Not necessarily all of them, if there are many lines of treatment with some cancers, but uh, at, at least the ones that have a good documented effect. And it follows something called a Simon uh, two-stage mo uh, model of expanding cohorts, meaning that if you start the cohort, it's eight patients. That cohort is regarded positive if one or more has a response uh, and can then expand by 16 additional patients to 24. Uh, and th then it's a positive cohort if five or more have a response. The response is defined either as complete response, partial response, or a stable disease, meaning that the cancer does not grow and that's evaluated at eight and 16 weeks by radiologically. In order, in order to start something like this, you want to have quite a lot of drugs to select from. So we started with eight drugs from Roche and we've been talking to a lot of companies many times. It's a lot of work to sort of, uh, uh, and at present we have 20 drugs and we have more drugs coming in. So we will be, go to 23 and then some more next year, I think. In order to operate the trial like that, uh, we had to set up diagnostics. We don't rely on local hospitals to do the diagnostics. We have a sort of national infrastructure that runs at university hospitals. that runs a big gene panel um, with more than 500 genes. And the, all the patients in Norway get discussed in the National Molecular Tumor Board inside that trial. Also, because we got national funding for this, runs at every hospital in Norway that treats cancer patients. So that's... Um, uh, 17 hospital trusts and 24 sites at the moment. Uh, and in the first 18 months, we screened uh, about 600 patients while this has been scaling and building up. Uh, and we saw that by setting up a national motor tumor board and a diagnostic infrastructure. And we also got that reimbursed in Norway. So the government pays for screening patients for clinical trials. We screened some of uh, uh, screening uh, uh, around 600. We found that uh, another treatment opportunity for between between 35 and 40 uh, percent. So uh, uh, either in the IMPRESS trial, uh, that's about 24 uh, percent, or in other trials or compassionate use programs. Uh, so set, just setting up a big gene panel test and molecular tumor board operation, uh, 40 percent of the patients get, get something more uh, and then uh, we, we did 24% uh, that get, got into the IMPRESS trial. And we hope that should increase as we get more drugs. Because in the start, we had eight drugs from Roche. Uh, and now we have more. 
and the more drugs, the better the aggregated algorithm work. The, uh, I think 132 have been included and uh, somewhere in the order of 70 had passed the 16-week uh, evaluation point and we saw that it's about 45% that have a clinical benefit. And many of them have stable disease. These are patients that have quite advanced disease. A number have partial responses. Uh, so it, it adds something, and you can always discuss, could it add more? I think the answer to that is, um, okay, then we need to move forward in the lines of treatment. We need to screen patients earlier in the disease course while they're healthier and less affected by their disease to see if they can get in earlier. It's hugely impressive, and uh, also just having that many hospitals on board must have been quite challenging, honestly. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, I think uh, building this for Norway has been... Um, it's been about, you know, doing something together, saying that we will share the competence. Uh, uh, it's going to be enough to do for everybody. Uh, and a lot of enthusiasm also, you know, it's an opportunity for small hospitals also to be involved in the trials. So do you, you, you sort of touched on this yourself, but do you, do you think this should be moved up and be done right when people get the cancer diagnosis uh, up front? Or, or, or do you think it's better to... to to use it in sort of refractory settings. You know, I think if you what we're doing at the moment, since this is being reimbursed in Norway, is that we're trying to scale it, and uh, it's not at the moment available for everybody because there's a bigger demand than uh, um, what's available. But but we want to get to a situation where also university hospital runs 16 per week and the other five university hospital runs eight per week. Now they are 54, that'll be around two and a half thousand patients per year. We think in, in 2023, we'll be able to do 1500 maybe. Uh, so may, maybe the year after we will be there. And patients with advanced disease in, in Norway is about 10,000. Many of them, uh, quite a few of them are not going to be healthy enough to participate in a clinical trial or yeah. for other reasons will not. Uh, but we think maybe we should get uh, 5,000, between two and a half and 5,000 somewhere. And then, but we, I think we need to try to meet that and then think about moving forward because if we move forward in the lines of treatment, it's going to be more patients. So, uh, Caroline, I was, I was hoping you could tell me, you, you mentioned early on that you had uh, you were also uh, implementing uh, similar approaches in, in Finland. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so... Well, in hematology, there has been one ongoing study, not to the extent of the Empress trial uh, that Shaitl is running, but mainly to to look at the feasibility of implementing next week with drug sensitivity testing uh, for for AML patients, and this is specific, just specifically focused on on one drug combination of venetoclax and, and dexamethasone, not dexamethasone, but azacitidine. So for for a uh, for AML and um, so this has has proved um, quite uh, effective in terms of bringing in a newly approved drug venetoclax in, into to Finland because uh, I think before that um, uh, the it wasn't we were being reimbursed so so actually an advantage of of this trial was to get access to a, a drug that otherwise patients would not have have access to to in Finland and and then to and then second is is really to show that 
is the ex vivo assay predictive of, of patient response? And, and now this is will be coming out in, in publication soon. It was just accepted in, in Hematologica and, and will be presented at the American Society of Hematology by Mika Contra about implementing new methods uh, for for precision medicine that are not just uh, genomic-based methods to identify drugs that would benefit refractory, especially refractory patients. And then they do have a, a new study clinical trial going on in Finland called FinPru, which is very similar to, yep. to the trial in, in Nor Norway. So basically it's it's copying what, what has been in, done done in Norway. So you've both uh, recently published some very elegant papers uh, uh, that apply precision medicines in the, the goal to sort of improve the treatment of hematological cancer patients. And and Carolina, you you recently uh, published a paper in Cancer Discovery called "Implementing a Functional Precision Medicine Tumor Board for Acute Myelo uh, Myeloid Leukemia," and in it you you sort of set out to prospectively use multi-omics profiling of I think almost two hundred uh, AML patients. To sort of help yeah. gu gu guide treatment uh, in case of labs, can can you tell a bit about how you sort of approached that and how you got the idea for that project? Yeah, this has been a project that has gone on for many years. Um, basically, it was started uh, more than a decade uh, ago, and, and wow. yes, <laughs> so. <laughs> So this is actually the uh, follow-up paper. It was uh, the first paper um, was published also in Cancer Discovery in 2013, uh, but on the very, just showing a, a small cohort of, of these patients. Basically, it was the idea that we need different ways um, to bring very useful drugs to patients sooner than what maybe genomic-based precision medicine uh, could do. So, but it, we wanted to take a, a multi-omic approach and, and try to use as much information as possible that we could get from a patient's tumor and, and see if uh, not only genomics, but, but functional assays, ex vivo testing uh, would be informative for, for patient care. And, you know, basically, we found out over the years that, well, the workflow for ex vivo testing uh, provided the um, fastest results. So those results could be implemented for patient care within a, a week, for example. But then, of course, on the genomic side, um, the results would take longer. And for relapsed AML patients, you can't wait that long. You, you need to give them something pretty quickly. But basically, not everybody has access to the same technologies. And, and ex vivo testing is very specialized. And we had the laboratory capabilities to do it in Helsinki, but it's not the same for, for, for everyone. And so we can also take the information we get from these assays and from ex vivo testing and then match it to the genomic information and identify biomarkers, for example, uh, that could be used to identify patients that re would respond to specific drugs like phenetococcus. So, and then that information could be used subsequently by others to identify patients. So we realized that ex vivo testing is, is not probably going to be something that, that 
would be universally implemented, but but at least may be able to may be a useful tool to identify, for example, biomarkers. Can you tell a bit about how how you guys set that up? Yeah, so basically that's just the multiomic approach and doing genomic profiling and transcriptomic profiling of the patient samples. And so your your recommendations were used in in thirty seven patients uh, with relapse AML, and of those that were evaluated, forty five percent actually received complete remission, and fifty nine percent had an objective response rate, and five patients were actually able to be bridged to some sort of uh, transplantation afterwards, which seems to me like a very positive result. Yes, yeah, especially for relapse to AML. So it's yeah. more than doubling the uh, the response rate for yeah. for those patients. So yeah, that was a very positive result. <laughs> I guess I guess a similar question that I asked Kotal earlier on was whether you think this is, is in a state where you could sort of move it up and, and, and try and do these things up front? I think one challenging thing is that, uh, although I think now that there are more and more labs that have these capabilities, um, everyone does it a little bit differently. This is something that we really have to work together on to try to standardize. So Kitzel, you, your group also published a, a paper that utilizes a, sort of an ex vivo drug screen. Uh, it's called ex vivo drug screen sensitivity screening in multiple myeloma identifies drug combinations that act synergistically. It was published here in, in, in the beginning of 2022 in molecular oncology. And, and in it, you sort of you, pu- you purify cells from, I think, 44 uh, multiple myeloma patients and actually test, I think, 30 different drugs against these uh, these cells. Uh, so can you tell a bit about how you set up this trial and, and, and why you went for this tumor type? Yeah, uh, we, we also, we're also doing... Uh chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, um, and that's maybe come further. Uh, not quite as far as Caroline and her colleagues have gotten with AML, but it's sort of starting to be used to stratify patients in clinical trials. Maybe I could first say that, you know, what we're talking about now, what Caroline and others at FIM have been sort of doing very elegantly is what we call functional precision medicine. And, you know, if you look at the scope, uh, what we can do with the... Um, Gene panels and uh, genetic profiling, like in the IMPRESS trial, what, what we see is that uh, depending on the cancer, we can find the treatment for uh, 50-60% of the patients. We can find an actionable target by examining the tumor genetically. In some cancers, it's much less. They're more like deserts, as we say. So we need additional methods to find out how can we stratify treatment, and that's where functional precision medicine comes in. When we analyze the situation, uh, Caroline and others at FIM were already doing AML, uh, and that was going nicely. So, uh, and Norwegian clinicians were sending their uh, samples to FIM. So we thought, okay, let's start with another hematological cancer. And the first one we started with was actually not myeloma, it was CLL. Uh, and the way we've analyzed this typically is we, 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 we looked for a cancer where there was a medical need. In CLL, there is a medical need. It's a quite slowly progressing disease that at least one third, maybe more, maybe up to half, become in need of a bone marrow transplantation because they run out of treatment opportunities. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then um, uh, uh, the, the second thing we looked for is wh- where could we get samples? And uh, CLL is managed very nicely in the University Hospital. We have a good clinical collaborator. Uh, and then the third uh, the thing in the analysis was where, where would there be sufficient material 
and with CLL, we, we're in a situation that we can draw a blood sample from the patient, uh, and you can run a, a density gradient to purify mononuclear cells from blood, and uh, not normally T cells and B cells, and in a CLL patient, that may be 94 to 99% cancer cells. <coughs> so that, and you can get half a billion, 200 million to, to a billion maybe per patient. Mm. So that, you know, provides you with a lot of material. Uh, uh, that's the same in AML as well. Uh, uh, so we did that. And then as a second thing, we did multiple myeloma. And that's more difficult because you will get less sample. Because uh, it's a bone marrow draw. Caroline's also worked extensively with multiple myeloma. And uh, for both CLL and multiple myeloma, it's more um, uh, it's more harnessing this test system uh, to be able to actually get clinically valid information uh, because AML grows spontaneously. Uh, but the CLL and multiple myeloma, we need to find out how can we make it grow so that we don't study artifacts. CLL will grow spontaneously to apoptosis if you just leave it in media. And we found for that cancer, we found that, okay, uh, if we uh, give them three growth factors, they will proliferate. And three growth factors were BAF, April, and CD40 ligand. So, and we engineered that so that they are on mass fibroblasts. So we can put the sample on a big, in a big culture flask uh, and leave them there for 24 hours and we can take them off uh, and put them into microtiter form of the place and do the drug screen, and then they will proliferate. For multiple myeloma, I was about not purifying the cells right away, but uh, just taking out the CD4 cells uh, and then leaving the whole bone marrow there a little while and uh, let that grow without the inhibition of the CD4 cells and then purify the cells. Uh, but that's always the case if you want to do a drug screen. For any also solid tumors, it's more difficult, right? Um, you need to uh, do a lot of work to see that you can set up the assay system in a way that will give you clinically useful information. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and we, we try to do ovarian cancer at the moment um, and go organized, and that's a whole lot of work again. Mm. Can, can I ask another question? Uh, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you take cells from the primary tumor or you try to get cells from, from a metastasis somewhere? For, multiple, for ovarian cancer, you mean? Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Just <clears throat> uh, uh, we take um, cells from the surgery. Uh, and the surgery yep. will normally be, you know, multifocal sampling can be from both ovaries, uh, 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 and uh, it can be from um, uh, metastasis inside the abdomen, uh, uh, but also normally from the primary tumor. Yeah. Um, uh, there's another project here that's colorectal cancer. They do uh, liver metastasis, for example. Uh, but you were asking about multiple myeloma, and I think we we we, we could make that work for do, to do a drug screen. We could also uh, do combinations and assess how the combinations were working, and we could uh, try to link that to see you, you know could we find things that were um, uh, uh, could do clinical validation. Uh, could we if the clinician decided to treat the patient with something, did, did we see that that was sensitive or insensitive in the screen? And did that match what they experienced clinically? And that's the difficult part, I think. Uh, that's been easier for CLL uh, because uh, we can screen more broadly, etc. cetera. Uh, 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 and uh, we're there at the stage where we're sort of using that to stratify now in clinical trials. So that's starting where Caroline and others have been in, in um, 
uh, in film. There's some more way to go for multiple myeloma before we can use it, I think, some more clinical validation. I think it's important that the assay works well. You, you have full control of the assay, you can standardize it. And then the second thing is that you do all these validations to see that it's actually, you know, a useful thing to do uh, and can uh, that the clinicians will trust the data and uh, dare use it, you know, to uh, uh, act on it to uh, suggest other treatments. So, so of course, this uh, this podcast is called the the Cell Therapy Podcast, and and I wanted to ask you both what role you see for precision medicine in um, in cellular therapies, in particular, in the future. Well, I think the even with targeted drugs, the immune microenvironment, I think, is is really underappreciated, <laughs> and we don't really understand the impact of these drugs on the immune cells and and how they might have either. Uh, a harmful effect or maybe a positive effect. And I think we could start asking this question, can there be novel combinations between targeted drugs and, and cell therapy? So matching, yeah, patients, not only to maybe the uh, specific genomic-based targeted drug, but but then also maybe in a combination with, with the newer cell-based therapies too. Yeah, I think that's a great point because a lot, especially in the hematological cancers, I guess a lot of these drugs will will target uh, the good good immune cells as well. Right. I guess. So I think that uh, you know cell therapy is going to move in two directions. At the moment, it's modifying uh, the patient's own cells, right, improving them so they will work better by expressing normally a car, a chimeric antigen receptor. And the first cars are again are against markers or antigens that are on all the cells, right? It's an individualized therapy because using the patient's own cells, you can say that's the precision medicine type of approach. But we're going to see two things. What one is attempts to sort of do off the shelf, right? And you can't use the T cell, but you can maybe use an NK cell um, uh, that will not be rejected by the patient's immune system, uh, and you can develop cars that are against. Uh, surface molecules are on all the uh, uh, cells. The other approach we get to see is that we get to see CARs and TCRs, engineered TCRs and other things that target specific neoantigens bound to the T-cell receptor or uh, specific other surface markers that are only expressed on uh, cancer cells. And then you can easily imagine that, you know, you, you would then want to run diagnostics to see if the patient is the candidate to receive the uh, this or that type of cell therapy. So I think uh, some parts can move towards off the shelf, but other parts are going to move even deeper into precision medicine, it's going to be precision immunotherapy or precision immune oncology. The other precision thing we're going to see in that domain, I think, is one of my lab's interested in that, uh, that maps out what are the tumor immunization mechanisms in each patient that sort of uh, turn off the endogenous immune system. And how can we deal with some of those by uh, pipeline things that starts with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, but there are other things that's also in the pipeline. We went through that recently, we published a review, we went through everything that was in the pipeline in uh, the tumor uh, immune innovation domain. A lot of those things you can imagine that could be used in, in combination with uh, cell therapy. That's also going to add a you know, precision aspect to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I think those are really valuable inputs and to me there's no doubt that we're sort of in this 
golden age of cancer almost uh, so much interesting things going on thanks thanks to people like you i would say so to round off the show uh, I, i like to ask our interviewees sort of three rapid fire questions and these are actually not uh, questions that are meant to have good answers it's, it's meant to throw you off a bit um so are, are you ready okay okay so if, if you weren't a scientist what would you be doing I think I would be a clinician. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, probably the same for me too, but you would both be doctors. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, but that's sort of boring. I I guess the second thing <laughs> I'm not really boring, but but probably the other thing I enjoy is is travel. So. I would be a travel guide or travel writer. <laughs> that sounds really nice. So can you tell me about a, a scientific mistake that you've made? Hmm, a mistake. I, I would say not a scientific mistake, but I, I, I think I, I regret not really promoting my programming or coding skills <laughs> because nowadays it, it, it's really very much needed in, in our field. And and. You can get so much more. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it, it's a funny you say that. There's actually been another. There was a, another guest on the show who said the exact same thing that you wish you'd spend more time programming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I learned bioinformatics in the 1987-88 when we had modems, etc., to connect to the uh, mainframe. But I haven't been able to sort of do that much work myself in 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 the last 10-15 years. So I also sort of yeah, would have liked to be able to do more in that domain. Also, would like to work more in the lab myself if I if I would have the opportunity. I think we miss some things there if you're too involved in strategy and leadership, etc. Uh, yeah, that's that's great answers. So, so the the last question I have is, what's the best piece of advice you ever received, or perhaps one that you would want to pass on to our listeners? Well, I usually just tell my students that you should really do what they're very passionate about and, and they can never fail with that they they should enjoy what they're they're doing i, I second that uh, you know a, a person that comes to me from my group and says that i want to do a particular experiment i uh, try never to say no to that if it's because uh, if, if there's something they really want to do i think they should do the experiment the other thing i usually say and and i experience is it's very important to learn to write uh, and if you don't learn to write as a PhD student, you do need to learn to write as a postdoc, because if you don't know how to write when you're sort of past that stage, you're not going to survive as a scientist. You, you have to write papers, you also have to write grants and other things. You have to learn, learn the skill of writing. And it's good to learn it early and then keep practicing, I think. Uh, uh, Starting sweating here a bit, Kershaw. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think these are great, uh, great advices. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you both so much for, for being on. I realize your your time is precious. Um, the uh, links to the to all the papers that we talked about in the show uh, and from the interviewees will be available in the show note on the podcast. And I do hope you enjoyed listening and do share and comment on the show on whatever online media uh, platform you're on. Uh, till next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.